0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Carolyn Roop about her book titled The History of the London Underground Map, um, just out in 2022 from Pen and Sword. Um, And as the title suggests, this book helps us understand where we get the iconic Tube map from. And it turns out to be quite a story um, that goes through all sorts of twists and turns, quite literally like the tunnels of the underground itself. Um, And despite being someone myself who really quite likes the underground map and thought I knew it pretty well, I learned rather a lot from this book. So Caroline, I'm so excited to have you with us to tell us more about it.
1: I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Could you start us off,
0: please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a social history writer. Um, My background is in heritage, so I've worked for the National Trust and English Heritage and some small scale heritage charities. But I've always been really interested in the human experience. So that's how our ancestors lived and how they experienced the world around them. Um, But also how we consume that history as well. So how we interpret it for ourselves, how it's presented in museums or heritage sites, and how we experience it. Um, and what I found is that a lot gets distorted in that process. Um, and for my, I did a master's degree in heritage management and I looked at how we consume the past and how much nostalgia sort of interferes with our perception of what actually happened. And unsurprisingly, it's quite a lot. <laughs> um, but this book actually came out of. Um, My time working for English Heritage, I used to commute into central London and having travelled on the underground, I wanted to know about the people who are responsible for it, for this enormous piece of infrastructure that, you know, billions of people use every year. Um, But also how how those people convinced Victorian Londoners to go underground. Um, You know, that was a big deal in the 19th century. People didn't go underground. You know, the underground was for moles and animals and, you know, the devil and, (laughs) you know, things that people didn't really want to think about. Um, So... uh, it, it kind of, I came about it in a in a strange way. That sort of led me down the path of how they sort of communicated to the public that this was a good idea. Um, and the way they did that was through its map and its artistic heritage. And that's where people like Frank Pick, who I think we'll probably talk about a bit later, and Harry Beck come in. Um, but it's also worth me saying that um, railway history can sometimes get a bit of a bad press um, because a lot of the older works on how the railways developed can be a little bit difficult to read. They're quite fact laden. They're technical. They're still valuable, um, but. To most people, they maybe don't make too much sense. Um, I wanted to make the book quite accessible um, so that someone with no prior knowledge of the underground could pick it up and engage with the story rather than being drowned in lots of technical information. So um, yeah, it's not a nuts and bolts um, kind, of, kind of book. It's, it doesn't go very deeply into to technical things, but I wanted to tell the story um, of the people behind the underground so yeah that's how it came about
0: wonderful thank you for sharing that with us i think it definitely does do justice to the readability of the book um and very much the feel of like Actually, being in a station um, in these early decades and going, well, what did it actually (laughs) smell like and sound like? And ooh, it's kind of icky. How did how (laughs) were people convinced to do this?
1: I know, I know. It's amazing that they managed to get them underground in the first place because you know it wasn't it wasn't it was quite a hostile environment, and they didn't have the technology to go underground either. So Mm. you know they had to actually construct machines from scratch to actually achieve this you know it's it's amazing when we think about it now um Mm. that they actually managed to do this but they did and we have a a london underground and it's brilliant
0: Well, so I'd love to um, kind of dive into that story. And for obvious reasons, I'll probably go mostly chronologically. Um, But I do want to say to the listeners before we start that, um, as we've sort of touched on, the book is very readable and has loads of fascinating detail. We're probably going to get into some of that, but... This is going to be a bit more of a highlights tour of the book. So, if you're intrigued by any of the stories or want more detail, um, I would direct listeners to the book itself, um, and we'll see kind of how much of that we get into. Um, and so, I'd love to kind of start with someone you've already mentioned, which is obviously Frank
1: Pick. Tell us yes. about this
0: person. And why is he so important?
1: Uh, Frank Pick. He's a bit of a legend, to be honest. He's he's actually no, he's like the best kept secrets of the underground because. Nobody really knows who Frank Pick Well, most people don't know who Frank Pick is, but he actually has a memorial at Piccadilly Circus. Um, just because of his sheer contribution to the artistic heritage of the underground, um, he's left an incredible legacy um, behind him in terms of our, the artistic and civic function of the underground. Um, He sort of refashioned the underground as a beacon of corporate modernity. So all of the things that we recognize um, when it comes to the branding of the underground, such as the bullseye roundel that's used today, that's the, um, the red circle with the blue bar across it, you know, you might call it a, a logo, but its its name is a roundel. That's used across the network. That was Frank Pick's doing. Um, the typeface is used on signage. That's Frank Pick. Um, and w- marketing communications at that time, I should say Frank Pick was the first half of the 20th century. So he was working for the underground in those kind of, um, you know, those those really important years when it was really kind of becoming more like what we know the underground to be today. Um, but of course, he was also responsible for bringing Harry Beck on board and Harry Beck's map, which we'll obviously get to a little bit later. Um, Such was his standing in the artistic community that Pevsner called him the greatest patron of the arts of the 20th century. So he was very well regarded in his time. Um, He recognised the importance of a corporate brand a long time before other large organisations did and how that would help to give the impression of a unified, efficient and cohesive network to the public. So he he was very much about um, making the underground a place where you wanted to be. Um, you know, he, he worked towards making it a good environment for people um, so that they could get around London because that's its primary function. Um, so he was employed by the Underground Electric Railway Company of London. <laughs> a bit of a mouthful. So um, we'll shorten that to the UERL, um, as I do in my book. That's one of uh, Transport for London's kind of previous incarnations. And this was in 1906. Um, it was a you know, a big period of change for Britain, finding its place in the world in a new century. Um, But he worked his way up the ranks. He was a traffic officer and then he became commercial manager, then managing director, and then finally CEO in 1933 at the same time that Beck's map um, came out. But he wanted the underground to be a sort of aspirational place and uh, a network, a transport network that London could be proud of. And he did that by making the underground more efficient and functional, but also by employing some really clever marketing strategies um, that would communicate its efficiency to the public. Um, But yeah, what's really interesting is that he had a very forward thinking approach, but he also sort of almost had one foot back in the Victorian age. (laughs) Um, He was a Victorian by birth. He was born in the Victorian times. But and his artistic choice is often harked back to that kind of previous age, um, such as some of the earlier maps that he commissioned before Beck came on board. Um, and we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit in a minute. Um, but they were delivered very much with modernity in mind and with an eye on raising the underground's corporate profile and increasing passenger numbers. So his architectural choices for stations and their internal design were kind of designed with the internal movement of passengers in mind. So, you know, he was always thinking about how he could get people around quicker. And, you know, some of those strategies are still in place today. So some of the layout of um, station concourses like Piccadilly Circus, they're designed very much with the flow of people in mind. And that was really revolutionary at the time. People weren't really kind of doing that. Um, So that was, you know, that was a really big deal. Um, And, you know, it was it was all about getting people to where they needed to be with as little fuss as possible, um, and making the underground an integral part of, you know, a modern city uh, of the early 20th century. So, yeah, he he was he was really important, and it always surprises me that when I say Frank Pick, nobody really knows who I'm talking about, because <laughs> he was absolutely critical to. Um, the development of the underground in the early 20th century so yeah
0: well i'm glad you mentioned kind of his sort of forward and backward lookingness because um i was quite struck by that that as you said mm. there are some key innovations and things where he was really thinking much further ahead than anyone mm. else um but then there were also some areas that really do seem to be trapped in the past or maybe we only think that because we know what comes later um, yeah. and of course that has to do with the maps yeah right because we do get to beck eventually but you've already hinted yes. um that was not the first attempt or really even the second or third um can you tell us about some of the earlier maps of the underground for example jill or gill not sure how it's pronounced yeah um, Gil. yeah gill can you tell us about kind of the pre-beck era of Lond- london underground maps
1: yeah so um they're a bit of a mess to be honest um The the way of producing maps um, for the underground um, back uh, before Beck was simply to superimpose the lines of the underground on top of a Cartographic map, um, so you know a standard map that you would use to navigate at street level. But of course, that's not really relevant if you're travelling underground. Um, so, I mean, we'll get to this a bit later. But Beck basically dispensed with with all of the kind of street level detail. But up to that point. Um, Maps were very. Um, they're very detailed. They had a lot of detail that wasn't really needed. If you're underground, you don't need to know what's going on on the surface. You just need to know where you're traveling from and where you're trying to get to. Um, but yeah, we we talked about um, Gill and yes that was i mean it's an astonishing map and i urge everybody to go and find it online because it's it's absolutely beautiful it's a piece of artwork but it's it's very different um to uh to this kind of standard underground maps um it was a a bit of a departure for mapping the network um so obviously the first section of the underground opened in 1863 And as I've just touched on, the the maps that were produced during that period to help navigate the network were topographical. You know, they were standard kind of cartographic um, pieces and they had landmarks on them and street level detail and they would just draw on top. But, you know, it's not that's not that helpful. But Gill's map um, was totally, totally different to anything you've seen before I mean it wasn't just it wasn't just you know the lines on top of a mat he did a whole piece of artwork um, it was called By Paying Us Your Pennies and he did it in 1914 um, and this came out of an idea that Frank Pick had um, he wanted to promote the network not only as a place where you could travel quickly from a to B, but he also wanted to communicate what London had to offer because he wanted to capture the leisure market. Um, he needed people to come into the city and use the underground network to experience the city. So he almost took a bit of an artistic leap backwards um, with Gill. Um, so he commissioned Gill to come up with a map that would capture people's attention. Um, he wanted passengers to stop and admire this amazing piece of artwork, um, draw the viewer in. And Gill's Map is an absolutely, it's a beautiful depiction of London. It's drawn with um, a kind of mythical, medieval flavour. You can't help but kind of look at it and look at all the details on it it's got heraldry shields griffins serpents (laughs) lots of flights of whimsy on it Um, it's quite far removed from functional i mean it's the opposite end of the scale to beck's map but um but it did the job and it got the leisure the leisure travelers in and um yeah i urge everybody to have a look at it because it's absolutely beautiful it's a beautiful piece of artwork but not at all i mean it's the opposite end of the scale to beck where beck Mm -hmm. was all kind of form and function gill was very much you know this is a piece of art you know it's it's kind of it harks back to like a previous age it's very kind of medieval in
0: yeah in i was its... gonna say it reminds me of like a tapestry almost
1: yeah I'd never thought of it like that. Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah, you're right. So yes, it, it was a really unusual choice for Frank Pick. But then, you know, he had to kind of think about all these different um, demographics of passengers that he needed to draw in. So whilst the commuter was on the rise during that time, he also needed, um, you know, the leisure passengers to come in, because the commuters are only really using the underground at certain times. So what what did he do to fill, you know, the trains with people and put bottoms on seats during, um, you know, the off-peak times, and this was one of the ways that he did that. So, yeah, it's um, fascinating, fascinating. Everybody should should have a look at it. <laughs>
0: mm, definitely. Um, this idea of kind of the leisure market and mm. bringing people into London for a particular experience and kind of trying to create that sense when you're underground, you can't see the streets. Um, of kind of this transport of nature, both literally you can get from point A to point B, but also like you can come into London and have this very different experience of shopping and leisure and whatever, Mm. um, seems to have been something of a theme during this period. Um, Mm. And I was wondering if you could tell us about Metroland
1: Ah, and its impact
0: on the underground and its maps.
1: Right. So Metroland, um, for those... Don't know where Metroland is. Not that it's called Metroland now, but it was. It's the area that the Metropolitan Railway served in the northwest of London. So it's sort of Buckinghamshire, Hertfordshire, and Middlesex. Um, so the Metropolitan Railway was the first um, line. It was the first railway line to go underground. Um, it's not a tube line because it's not at deep level. Um, so um, that's a, a technicality that we don't really need to talk about here. But it, it was an underground railway line and it was the first one um which was opened in 1863 but it always had designs on being a proper kind of overground railway it didn't really want to be underground it spent most of its existence trying to escape and come above ground in fact um so during the construction of the metropolitan railway um the company bought up sections of land along its length. They were quite clever. Um, By the early 20th century, those sections were quite ripe for new housing developments. So the railway would benefit twofold through this, um, through selling off the land for residential construction and then the increase in passages that that would bring um, from people buying homes there. They would obviously need to come into London um, for work and then travel home at the end of the day. So um, they started off by promoting Metroland as a kind of leisure destination to start with. So this is um, for people to escape the city. And this sort of began in about 1915. So this is quite a long time after the Metropolitan Railway's kind of origins in in the middle Victorian period. Um, So in 1915, they started promoting this area um, as a kind of place to be. They, They wanted to promote it as a haven of peace and quiet with rolling fields woodlands, thatched cottages, cows, <laughs> you know, every, everything that the countryside had to offer. Um, and it was like that at that time, because London was nowhere near the size that it is now. You know, the, the suburban sprawl hadn't really kicked in. So it was that and more. You know, it was a big kind of blank, empty space um, of beautiful countryside. Um, And, you know, it would really come into its own at that time as well, because of the horrors of the First World War. Everybody needed a bit of... Escapism. Um, so um, they kind of promoted it as a like a homes for heroes kind of area. When they were looking at turning it into residential, they kind of jumped on the political bandwagon a little bit. And you know, they're like, oh, this, you know, this is an amazing area. Let's give our boys who've you know fought so hard abroad. Let's give them a nice area to live. You know, where they can kind of make their little homestead. Um, so they turned their attention to promoting Metroland for those looking to move permanently out of the city, and they begun a large-scale residential building programme. And the irony of that, of course, is that by doing that, they actually covered the rural idyll <laughs> that they were using as a selling point in buildings and infrastructure. So it didn't stay a rural idyll for very long. Um, first, the state was at Pinner, and that predated the war. But after the war, um, they, you know, they obviously, they needed a lot more housing and they developed a a string of estates um, broadly following the route of the railway. They were at Chalk Hill in Wembley, Cedars Estate at Rickmansworth. Um, There was one at East Coat, Rainers Lane, Hillingdon, Chorleywood. There were others as well and, and Amersham. So this went quite a long way out of London and um, in 1924 they actually produced a map of the metropolitan suburban services which showed all of these estates and also where all the nearest golf courses were (laughs) which gives a a little bit of a nod towards the clientele that they you know they wanted to appeal to it was like you can have your home here and here's a lovely golf course that you can spend your time on too (laughs) um so um yeah, it, but the problem was it became very difficult to map um, the sheer scale of the Metropolitan Railways line. I mean, it was snaking out miles <laughs> from the capital. Um, so it was interesting how they they kind of coped with that um, prior to Beck because where they were trying to impose the underground lines on a normal map, you know, the map would have to be absolutely enormous and you wouldn't be able to see the kind of central London detail if they were going to use that approach. Um, So often with the metropolitan line, they would just kind of cram their station. If they were going to draw a map, they would just cram the stations, the outlying stations into a little box, sort of on the side, Um, you know, or they might kind of just cut them off completely, um, or they might be squashed up into a corner. Um, And obviously Beck's diagram in 1933 would address that and, and make the network look like it was a unified, kind of cohesive system where all the stations were shown. And he would do that, Ultimately, by obscuring some of the distances, and we'll probably talk about that a bit later. But yeah, it's um, it's really funny. The Metropolitan Railway they <laughs> they spent most of their time just trying to kind of escape London. To be honest, they t- <laughs> they were always kind of going further and further and further away. They really wanted to be a proper proper railway, not an underground railway, but. Um, yeah (laughs) they didn't quite manage that although a lot of obviously a lot of that route is above ground but um yeah it's still officially an underground line it's not Mm -hmm. a a kind of proper railway a mainline railway (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. still to this day
1: yeah to this day (laughs) yeah
0: um so continuing chronologically we're not quite at Beck yet because there's just so much to get into in this book um one of the things that I was particularly interested in is obviously, as we've just spoken, the Metropolitan Line has a lot of stations, um, mm. but not nearly as many stations across the whole network as there are today. So that expansion has to come somewhere, or at least some of that yeah. expansion has to come somewhere. And I was really surprised that there was so much expansion between World War One and Two. Mm. And, you know, on the face of it, it's like, oh, well, that's peacetime. So obviously... But that's also the stock market crash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know, there's a yeah, whole a period bunch of, depression. of problems. Mm. Yeah. So there's a bunch of political problems, a bunch of economic problems happening during this period. Um, how and why did the underground manage to expand anyway? <sighs>
1: Well, they were clever. I suppose it's a simple answer. I mean, um, obviously, the, the interwar years saw the rise of the commuter. And what a commuter really wants is an efficient and organized network that could transport them from their home in the suburbs, metro land, <laughs> um, into the city. So the underground had to go to the commuter. And they did that by expanding outwards into the areas that were not at that point, served by underground stations. Um, they had to, obviously, during the war years, the underground had put a lot of its development plans on hold. Um, you know, it, it, it was always wanting to extend its lines, but because of the war, you know, that, that wasn't always possible. Um but what they were able to do was to say that they would be able to provide work and contracts in the steel and construction industries, and that would help combat the post war rise in unemployment. Um, so, you know, they were able to take advantage of, you know, government schemes, um, you know, to, to provide these jobs. Um, and they made connections between routes. So they built new sections, they pushed out into the countryside, they went north to Edgware and south to Morden. So they they're really kind of stretching themselves across the city by this point. And by 1926, it was possible to travel from Edgware, which is in Middlesex, through the heart of London and on to Morden, which was then in Surrey. So, I mean, they, they were really kind of pushing themselves out. Um, and to make sure that everybody knew this. They had to get their PR working again. Um, they expanded all of their graphic output. And um, that period was really prolific for poster art. Um, you know, they loved their their poster arts on the underground. They loved catchy slogans that kind of made clear all the benefits of underground travel. So it was fast trains every few minutes. And, um, you know, they wanted to promote their house buying as well for all these new extensions. Um, so they were saying things like a change of residence is as good as a holiday. Um, you know, they came up with all these these kind of natty slogans that would kind of help them to, to get um, you know, people, people onto the underground. But these posters, they weren't just a means of communicating key marketing messages. They were really high quality pieces of artwork. Um, you know, they, they, were, they were done by renowned artists um, such as Edward McKnight-Cowfer, Walter Spradbury. Um, you know, these were really kind of top quality pieces of artwork. So they were trying to raise the kind of civic profile of the underground as well. They, were, Again, making it into a place where people wanted to be. Um, And um, when it comes to the poster artwork, I must direct people to the London Transport Museum's online collection because they've got an amazing showcase of of the poster artwork from that period and if you're interested in in the development of graphic marketing material you must go to the ltm's website because they've got a fantastic digital collection it's i mean i wouldn't have been able to write this book actually without it because i wrote it during covid so it was really difficult to kind of get anywhere get into london get into archives so thank goodness for the london transport museum (laughs) and their digital collection but yeah i urge everybody to have a look because honestly the the posters during that period the interwar period are absolutely fantastic i mean they're they're standalone pieces of art in their own right they're brilliant Mm. so yeah
0: well thank you for the recommendation of a good online archive always of use to many people (laughs) um so before we get to beck one last other person to introduce that we probably Mm. should know more about than we do um herbert morrison
1: Yeah. Herbert Morrison. Um, He was the Minister for Transport in Ramsay MacDonald's Labour government and they came to power in 1929. Um, He's quite significant because he was the person who was responsible for um, really kind of bringing the network together. you know, he's he's quite significant in the story. He brought all the private companies together that ran London's transport provision into one unified organisation called the London Passenger Transport Board. And that would evolve several times um, until it became the TFL um, that we know today, that we all know and love sometimes, sometimes <laughs> not today. Um, but yeah, up until... Herbert Morrison came along um, the lines were more or less run as kind of separate concerns and some of them were grouped together some were totally separate private companies and you also had all the trams and the buses and everything it was all kind of run separately Um, and because the underground developed piecemeal um, you know this this was all part of um, you know different people being in charge of different lines. And there's no kind of one unified approach. But um, the big players were the Metropolitan Railway Company, who we've talked about already. They were the original line. And then you had the Metropolitan District Railway and the Central London Railway, which of course is now the central line today. Um, and some of those merged to become the UERL, that's the Underground Electric Railways Company who employed Frank Pick. Um, And that was formed with American investment at the beginning of the 20th century. But many of them still worked separately. And most of the time, they just didn't get on at all. Um, So Herbert Morrison was quite forward thinking. He was a socialist. Um, He wanted to reform how transport operated in London um, because he thought it would work better. He thought he could make it work better as a system. Um, He had a vision. And that was of a public corporation with responsibility for the m- majority of London's transport offering. So that included buses and trams and the railways and, of course, the underground. Um, he's quite good at political wrangling. Um, so he kind of extolled all the financial benefits of a unified system, and he could see the positive effect um, the network could have on civic life if it kind of worked. They worked together rather than separately. Um, So he presented a bill in 1931, um, but unfortunately the Labour government actually collapsed five months later and he lost his parliamentary seat. But all was not lost um, because the Conservative-led coalition government that came into power afterwards, they kind of recognised the merits of this bill. And um, the legislation that was needed to form the new corporation was passed in 1933. And... um, yeah, it was the London Passenger Transport Board, and it was known more simply as London Transport, and that was kind of how that was one of the early kind of incarnations of TfL. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, it was it was really kind of um, it was a it was a really big deal back then. Um, it, it you know they were. It represented the best of public administration um, and how kind of commercial aims could work alongside social responsibility so it was the right solution at the right time but it involved some absolutely staggering numbers um, even by modern standards it cost a hundred million <laughs> to bring it to fruition and um, I actually looked that up recently on one of these kind of converter things we can convert kind of older you know older um, monetary values into into today's and that would be five billion pounds <laughs> today it's a lot of money um, to, to bring the system together but i mean it worked um we still have a transport for london today and um you know it's still alive and kicking so it was obviously the right thing to do
0: <laughs> i'm glad you made a point of the numbers being astronomical that was definitely something i picked up on as a reader going wow would this be possible actually no i don't need to ask that question it would not be possible today <laughs>
1: No, can you imagine five billion? It's it's a staggering sum of money, but you know it was what London needed at the time, Um, Mm. and you know Morrison was right to do it. So um, yeah, he was he was a fairly critical player Mm. in the story. So yeah. Well, now that we've got
0: Pick and we've got Morrison and we've got kind Mm. of all the foundations here. the key piece of the right place at the right time, or maybe even a few decades late, given what had <laughs> gone on before. Yeah, um, it is now finally time. Who was Beck?
1: Beck. Ah, he's the uh, yes, the protagonist of our piece. Um, Beck was an engineering draftsman, um, but he had an amazing eye for detail, and he had a bit of a vision. Um, So, he was actually unemployed um, when he kind of first came on the scene um, and when he produced his first sketch of the diagram in 1931. so he was born in 1902. So he was born at the turn of the century um, in Essex. He had an artist for a father, but his father actually worked in monumental masonry. So nothing like this at all. But he obviously kind of picked up on, on um, that kind of artistic vibe. And he, Beck had attended art classes and, and done some graphic design prior to his work for London Underground. His first role was actually as a junior draftsman in the Signal Engineer's Office. This was in 1925, but he was a temporary employee um, because, you know, this was, as we've talked about, this is a time of kind of economic depression and um you know, cuts were being made. And so he was actually dismissed several times during the later 1920s, whenever financial cutbacks needed to be made. But it's thought that these periods of inactivity actually allowed him to cultivate his idea for the diagram and hone the version that would eventually be presented to London Transport. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing what he achieved. I mean, his f- kind of final creation, um, it... It departs from all previous attempts to map the system because it becomes so kind of profuse and unwieldy um, in terms of di- the dimensions of the city and um, you know the, the network. So he needed to completely ignore the mapping values that you know were inherent in what we consider a map to be topographical maps, such as geographical accuracy, the scale, the street level features. Um, He knew, Beck knew the maps that had come before him. um, And he simply thought that he could do better. And, you know, he proved himself to be right. (laughs) Um, But I should point out that um, despite following the principles of graphic and informational design, um, such as uh, having no topographical detail and clean aesthetics, the diagram is still referred to as a map. And even TFL call it a map. When they aren't calling it a journey planner um it's a diagram that functions as a map it is actually a diagram it's a graphic diagram um but um it functions as a map in physical terms because you can have it in your pocket your pocket map but it also encourages a mental map of london that exists inside passengers heads. so um there was a study done in 2008 by um janet Vertesi into this kind of interface um and her the respondents to her study consistently drew London according to its underground stations and where they thought they were in relation to other street-level detail. And one interviewee had even said, it's on the Tube map, therefore it must be London. (laughs) Which says how much kind of Beck's map is sort of ingrained in our consciousness. It's just Mm. kind of there, especially for Londoners. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't live in London myself, although I I used to work in London. But you kind of, when you think about London... um, you often think about how it looks on a tube map, even though a lot of the time, you know, it's it's kind of Bec actually obscured, um, you know, a lot of the scale and distances in order mm. to kind of make it work. Um, you know, it was really revolutionary, um, but it did build on the work of previous underground mappers um, such as George Dow. Um, he worked on diagrams for the London and Northeastern Railway and Fred Stingemore who is Beck's predecessor, and he championed Beck's version in its early years. Um, but the only difference was Beck kind of executed this, this whole um, new way of, of designing maps a bit better than them. But there were some diagrams in existence already prior to Beck's, but Beck kind of just, well, he, <laughs> he kind of just took it one step further. Um, and the way he did this is he replaced all the kind of curvy, sinuous lines of the previous maps and he basically made them straight. I mean, it sounds so simple when you say it like this. He made them go horizontal, vertical, 45 degree angles from the central line, which kind of acted as a, a sort of baseline. He would have drawn that first, discarded any street level detail And by doing that, he was able to kind of play around with the distance and the scale. So he enlarged the central area, which has the highest density of underground stations, and he placed every station at an equal distance from the next. And that meant by doing that, he could kind of compress the furthest reaches of the network. So all the bits that kind of went out into the suburbs, Metroland, it was all like a big kind of unwieldy sort of, octopus, (laughs) tentacles everywhere, Um, he was able to kind of like bring that onto the map because he condensed the kind of central section. Um, And he knew that by divorcing the lines from their geography, it would allow the diagram to just work as a navigational aid. So by taking off all that street level detail, you're just simply left with a way of seeing how you get from A to B. I mean, it's quite simple, really, when you sort of Mm. distill it down like that. Um, And that was always the primary function of this diagram. It just needed to get people around the system. Um, And his rules were really simple. Just forget accuracy and distances and then bring in... You know, the sequence of stations and how they related to the rest of the network, bring that to the fore. Mm. Um, you know, you don't really need anything else. Um, so it's really surprising that his superiors weren't actually convinced by this at all. Um, he presented his first version in 1931, um, but they thought it was too revolutionary. They didn't think people would understand it. And it was too modern. Um you know, it's easy for us with hindsight to just say, oh, my goodness, you know, what what were they thinking? But, you know, at the time, it was quite a departure from, you know, what everybody was used to. Um, So thank goodness, he tried again in 1933. And, you know, that was the same year that the London Passenger Transport Board was created. So maybe, you know, they were kind of, going with this kind of new spirit of a new organisation, you know, a new modern public corporation. um, And, um, you know, maybe it was just, you know, the right thing at the right time, and they agreed to print it for a trial run. And the rest is history, isn't it? Um, Obviously, there's way more to to the Beck story (laughs) um, that I've talked about there. That was very brief, but um, obviously, you know, sorry.
0: Gives us an overview.
1: It's an overview, yeah, exactly. But obviously I I go into a bit more detail in my book. But um, yeah, thank goodness Beck did persevere (laughs) because we we might still be like fumbling around in the dark otherwise, literally.
0: (laughs) Well, um, one thing that was quite interesting is that um, obviously the diagram underwent revisions, both in Mm. response to his superiors and of course um, the continued sort of changes in the lines and stations. Um, Yeah. And these continue for quite a while, uh, and you they consider do. 1949 to be the peak mm. diagram.
1: Yes, Why well, it, that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was to Beck um, definitely. Um, so to answer that, you kind of have to look at the environment that Beck was working in. Um, he can't. He almost walked on a. Bit of a tightrope. He wasn't an employee at that point. He'd left the organisation um, to become a lecturer at the London School of Printing in 1947. But he was still the custodian of the diagram, and he worked on it on a kind of freelance basis for London Transport. They actually owned the design, um, which would cause a whole raft of problems for Beck later on which i obviously explore in my book but um beck was paid for the changes that he made and any updates they requested um but many of the updates that had come from the kind of top dogs of the organization between 1933 and 1949 he wasn't that keen on um you know they asked him to do some really um obscure things like um I think one of the things they did was they asked him to put station names in like diamonds and stuff it was it was all a bit um yeah some of the maps are they're they're still lovely but they're you kind of look at them and you think why did they do that (laughs) but obviously hindsight's a wonderful thing but yeah Beck wasn't keen on some of these changes um but once he left um once he left London Underground um, or London Transport, he was maybe kind of one step removed from that day-to-day bureaucracy um, that was going on, you know, um, and, and people saying, like well, we need to do this, we need to do this with the map or that. Um, it maybe gave him a bit of, bit more sort of artistic freedom and the confidence to dispense with all those elements that he just didn't like um like duplicating station names that was another weird thing they implemented um so where they had you know an intersection between two lines they would print the name of the station twice i mean it's it's just really pointless things you know superfluous things that didn't really need to be on there um so yeah beck got rid of all that nonsense. And um, yeah, the 1949 one was, you know, it was his his favourite. He'd got rid of all of the elements that he didn't like um, it, on the diagram. And um, they got rid of the ornamental border. I think up until that point, there'd been a border on it. He didn't like that. So he got rid of those. He got rid of all of those for 1949. And he considered it to be his absolute finest in terms of its clarity, its form and its function. And that elevated its usability, which, of course, was the point of it. He wanted it to be user-friendly um you know he was quite forward-thinking in that respect he wanted it to be simple for people to look at and use he didn't you didn't need some of the things that were on there some of the things that he'd been asked to implement um so yeah he managed to kind of get rid of some of those things by stealth I think over the years it's like oh (laughs) did I forget to put that on there sorry (laughs) about that (laughs) um that was his kind of modus operandi but um yeah he, that was that was beck's favorite he he himself said you know that that was him at his finest so yeah
0: mm. <laughs> good one to then consider um the best if if, if mm. that's what he thought um I'd love to kind of step a little bit back from Beck and um, think about kind of the literal environment that many of his maps are in, the actual stations, Mm. the actual tube carriages themselves, um, because we've already talked a bit about um, art in and around the underground and what a big deal this has been on maps, on promotional material, Mm -hmm. really all over the place. Um, But we haven't really kind of moved on chronologically around it from the kind of in a lot of ways, one of the peaks in the 1920s and 30s. So maybe you could tell us about sort of how art in and around the underground sort of continues from that point. What continuities yeah. can we see?
1: So um, Frank Pick, obviously, just going back to Frank Pick. I mean, he uh, left an ama- amazing kind of artistic um, legacy. All the iconography that you see today on the underground—it's just so recognisable. Um, you know, we. Talked about the roundel already. That's the the um, the logo that's used. Um, You know, all of that. It still continues to this day. Um, We you know we don't really think about it when we're on the underground, but um, the signage and the the colours of the lines. Beck's map I mean it's obviously it's been modified beyond all recognition um but you know it's still at the heart of the current journey planner it's still in there somewhere um you know all all of these things are they're just the spirit of the underground they're there and they're you know they're they're just so recognisable. Um, what Frank Pick did in terms of the branding was was astonishing, really. Um, you know, he was such a revolutionary. But um, yeah, even art on the underground um, is actually a, a scheme. Um, that kind of uh, carries on Pick's legacy of working with artists to ensure, you know, excellence in the civic environment. And um, Art on the Underground is still a scheme that operates today. Um, But there's also permanent contributions from that period um, that exist today. The station architecture, such as Arnest Grove um, and Southgate, They're very well-known stations. Um, You know, they're very um, distinctive stations that uh, most people know. They're they're kind of 1930s architecture, they're Art Deco. Um, But also their internal features, all the concourse design and the lighting, the functionality of stations. They're all kind of key design elements that endure to this day. Um, And they're testament to kind of the, the functionality that pick was so keen on you know he that was part of his kind of um you know the the way that he did things he wanted things to be functional he wanted the environment to be nice um you know the the it's the funny thing about the underground is that has gone through periods of decline as well i mean um i think i i touch on my book on the 1980s that was a bit of a kind of awful period for the underground you know there was crime um graffitiing Uh, things kind of really took a a, i think they kind of lost their way a little bit and i do explore this a bit more in the book um but they kind of lost their way with what they were doing and i think they'd kind of forgotten (laughs) frank pick and kind of everything that he achieved and and You know, it's brilliant that they've kind of raised the underground back up again. And and although we love to hate it a lot of the time, and I can say that because I used to use it as a commuter, you know it's it's a much better system than it was say twenty thirty years ago um you know they've they, it's really kind of it's it's come back up again I would say um mm. although I don't know if you asked a commuter on a Monday morning <laughs> he's been standing on a station waiting for a train they might give you a different answer but um yeah, those legacies are so important. And I think as long as they get under, the Underground kind of keeps that, or Transport for London, if they keep that kind of in their their vision, um, you know, they can't really go far wrong. They kind of need to hark back to Frank Pick's heyday, I think. And just Whenever things take a downward turn, maybe just think of Frank Pick and what he would do. <laughs>
0: well, So, in fact, that's what I'd love to ask um, you to help us do. Um, what do you think some of these key people Beck pick Morrison what would they think of where we are today with the map the diagram and the art on the London on the London underground
1: oh I don't know if they'd be that thrilled to be honest um I think I mean I've spoken to um to to current graphic designers you know people in the know um and um obviously I, I you know, I can't speak to Harry Beck or Frank Pick, but I I kind of know from talking to um, graphic designers of today, uh, what, (laughs) you know, they they kind of have, well, it's not even a guess. They kind of, they know what they would say. And they would say that it's it's just far too unwieldy um, to be useful. Um, You know, hats off to the, the people that draw i mean i couldn't do it myself it's it's way too complex for me but the overwhelming opinion is that um it's got far too much information on it now um it kind of renders it unfathomable and that kind of takes it away from its um, primary aim which is to help people get around um it's because the network obviously has grown beyond recognition but there's also a kind of tendency to um are on the side of caution with regards to communicating information. There's a kind of fear that if people aren't told everything that might be relevant to their journey all in one go, then something will go wrong and it will be TfL's fault. Um, so they're kind of stuck, really. I mean, it's their duty to ensure um, passenger accessibility and safety, um, as well as ensuring people can reach the places they're trying to get to. But trying to communicate all that in a kind of legible way is, well, it's a bit of a thankless task, really. I don't envy them at all. Um, One of the graphic designers I spoke to, um, he calls that information pollution. So it's basically an overload of mapping features that distract from the original purpose of the design. The original purpose is to plan and aid travel. And a lot of the, um, the the elements of the diagram that we see today... I'm sure they're useful to some people, um, but they're not useful to everyone. And it's so hard. It's so tricky. So tricky. I wouldn't want to be the person drawing it, basically. But I think probably <laughs> Frank Pick and uh, Harry Beck would probably say that it's gone quite quite a long way from the original kind of design design um, ethos Um, Mm. uh, yeah I I think they would yeah I think they wouldn't recognize it as Beck is in there somewhere I should say he's in there somewhere he's just been obscured by lots of other things Um, but it's really interesting actually because some of the designers that I spoke to they'd actually attempted their own versions and they'd had varying degrees of success and what they found is that people don't like other people messing with the underground map. Um, So... um yeah. Uh, one of the design consultants I spoke to, his name's Mark Node, um, he attempted to redraw it in 2011. So he he actually harked back to the previous maps. He stripped the process back to its origins. He used Google Maps and a battered old copy of the London A to Z Street Atlas to actually plot the positions of the stations to be geographically true to life, well, as geographically true to life as possible. Um, and he published his version online and on Twitter and and various other places. And the reactions that he got were (laughs) quite revealing. Um, They ranged from beautiful, so that was one of the good ones, to an ugly waste of time. (laughs) So it's really quite a divisive subject. But the kind of general consensus is that Beck's version was the doyen of 20th century information design and transit mapping. And basically, it's sacrilege to, you know, attempt to do it yourself or try and change it in any way. Um, But, you know, that's not practical. Um, You know, TfL need to they need to get people around the city and it's a big city now and it's, you know, and they want to make it accessible. They, they want to show where they've got accessible stations and where there's step free access and, and, yeah, it's uh, it's so hard. It's so hard for them. There's no way it could look anything like Beck's map now. I mean, that uh, that's impossible because they need to to have this information on there. But I think the problem is it just hasn't been executed in a way that graphic designers feel is kind of helpful. I think that's the problem. Mm. So yeah, it's really tricky. It's a tricky <laughs> one.
0: <laughs> Very tricky. Um, hopefully, my last question will not be as tricky. Um, But here goes. So obviously, this book uh, took rather a lot of research and effort and digging through things and piecing it all together to um, help us understand all of these details and how they make a story. Mm. Um, And I'm wondering if I know as a reader, I found quite a lot of things new and surprising But I was wondering, given how close you were to all of the details and sources, et cetera, Mm. is there something you came across in the research or writing of the book that you found particularly surprising you could share with us?
1: Well, I had no idea that the early days of the underground was so kind of steeped in... um, disputes arguments controversy underhandedness I I didn't realize I mean you look at the underground now and it's this kind of coherent um, system that works really well you know it's unified it's all under the banner of transport for London everything works as it should but in the early days of the underground um, as I mentioned before, all of the lines were run separately and they were often competing with each other as well. So there was a whole kind of, um, you know, there was a, everything was very sort of competitive and underhanded and they were arguing about who owned, um, you know, what bits of land that needed to be built on and what was the best way to run the trains and, you know, should they be running steam or should they transfer to electric and who was going to do that first? And, oh, it's just, yeah, I had no idea there were all these kind of arguments going on because Beck's map, that's the funny thing. Beck's map makes it look so neat and tidy. Um, you know, it kind of obscures the kind of chaotic beginnings of the underground in a way. Um, you know, it's a story that's full of sort of plot twists, uh, a bit like the, you know, the lines that Beck straightened on his <laughs> diagram. Um, but, yeah, it spent a lot of the first decades of its existence on the brink of financial collapse. Um, mm. You know, it almost didn't happen at all. Um, and it was only through um, a slightly dodgy American businessman called Charles Yerkes, who we haven't had time to talk about today, but I do talk about him in my book, Um he actually saved the underground from going under, essentially, but not before one of his investors was convicted of fraud and committed suicide immediately after his sentencing. Um, and that was before he'd even left the court. I mean, it, there's all these little stories. I just had no idea that, you know, that, that it was built on such a kind of, um, you know, so much controversy Um you know, obviously there's there's more of this in my book. But, you know, and the underground scene, it's fair share of tragedy as well. And and some of that has happened in living memory, obviously. And and writing those sections was a really kind of moving experience. Um, but in some respects it also kind of highlighted the way in which the city and its network kind of pull together in times of crisis and you know that's that's at the heart of everything really isn't it I mean the the underground's referred to as the you know the beating heart of the city but it's the people that actually breathe the life into it and it's their stories that I wanted to uncover so hopefully I have in my book
0: (laughs) Well, what a wonderful um, note to end on. Um, and as a reminder, the book is called The History of the London Underground Map um, out in 2022 from Pen and Sword. Um Carolyn, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.